pray together. Father, you have been so faithful, and in fact, faithful is just who you are. And so here tonight, give us eyes to see that faithfulness a little bit more clearly and help that truth to just reign over our lives to the point where we just accept and embrace this truth and it becomes uh, the basis for which we just continue to live in your kingdom to the fullest. Father, here tonight, I pray that you will just speak to us through Steve. Man, calm his heart. Give him a boldness to speak your message through him. And Father, for these kids, man, bless their time, bless their hearts, bless their minds, help them to see you maybe in a new way here tonight. I pray for decisions. I pray for more than decisions. I pray for convictions here tonight. I pray for obedience. I pray for submission. I pray to see you in a whole new way and to see our own sin and our own brokenness without you here tonight. And Father, we love you so much. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Hey, kids, you guys are sent. Have an awesome time. You're not sent, sent. You're dismissed. How about that? And as they're heading out, I'd love to ask you guys um, just to consider praying for our leadership as we have conversations about things like church growth and next steps and things like that, things like church planning and all that. We would love for you all just to begin praying. In fact, here tonight, I'd love for us to together pray for God to guide our next steps. Guys, we so desire as we continue to grow to maintain unity as a church. And so we ask here tonight for God to do just that. Father, I pray as you continue to have your way, and we remember that Jesus said that that he would build his church, and so help us to just submit to the authority of your will. Help us as leaders to get out of the way and just let you have your way. And for us as a congregation, God, we, we just plead with you, we ask that you would continue the unity that we have as a church as we make decisions moving forward. We love you very much. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Hey, it's also my honor to introduce our speaker here tonight. Um, Steve is a guy who leads our men's group and has done a phenomenal job with that. Also leads a life group. He helps in tech. I don't know what he doesn't do. He's been so active and just so faithful with what we've given him and so coachable, and so we're th- so thankful to have him here tonight. I would love to pray one more time and pray for Steve as he makes his way up here. Father, I pray that you'll bless Steve tonight. I pray that you'll give him clarity that it is your message through him. And so give him a confidence and a boldness that, um, that you will have your way with your message here tonight. I pray that you'll bless him. I pray that you'll bless the preparation. I pray that you'll speak to us through him here tonight. We love you a lot. Jesus' name, amen. Steve, it's all yours. Keep expectations low. Well, good evening. We are continuing in our hard questions series tonight, and the question of the night is, is the Bible reliable? 
And I know for a lot of people in here, yes is a perfectly acceptable answer for you. But for some people in here, it's a more complicated question than that. And you might know somebody in your life that, uh, that has so those sorts of questions. So I hope that we can answer that tonight. Uh, before we get started, uh, while I was preparing for this message, something really struck me, and I wanted to bring it up, because I think it's something that we can sort of take for granted from time to time. I know I do. But we are incredibly blessed to live in a time when every single one of us has our own personal copy of our sacred scriptures in a language that we can read. For an overwhelming majority of church history, that was not the case. For thousands of years, if you wanted a copy of the scriptures, you had to copy it by hand. You had to know the language it was written in. It wasn't until 1516 that a man named Erasmus published a complete Greek New Testament, making it available to the masses for the first time. 1516. That's barely 500 years ago. And if that date's not incredible enough, I'm going to give you another one. In 1517, Martin Luther posted his 95 Theses and essentially kicked off the Protestant Reformation. One year. That's how incredibly important it is that not only we have access to this book, but that we actually read it for ourselves. All right, so don't take the word from anybody standing on this or any other stage. Go home, read it for yourself. All right, amen? All right, so let's get into it. How did we get this book? How did we get these 66 books? Do we have the right ones? And if we do have the right ones, how can we be confident that they haven't been dramatically altered from the originals over time? So we're going to jump right into 2 Timothy 3.16 that says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Now we're going to focus on this phrase, God-breathed, for a second. The Greek word being used here is theanoustos. It's a super fun word to say, and I want you guys to say it with me, all right? Theanoustos. theanoustos. You're going to be saying it all night, I know it. But theonostos can also be translated to inspired. That's something that we're all familiar with. We know that the Bible is the inspired word of God. But what does that process of inspiration look like? Well, that process can be broken down into three smaller pieces. The first one is revelation. Revelation is the revealing of God's word to the authors. The next phase is another really fun word to say. Inscripturation. That's the transcribing of God's word into text or scripture. And then the last phase is probably the most overlooked, it's arguably the most important, and interestingly, it's the only phase that we still participate in today, and that is illumination, which is the gaining of understanding of the Scripture, the conviction of its truth, authenticity, and authority. You see, we got the canon of the Bible in a gradual and organic process that the entire church participated in as a collective. What does it look like practically? God revealed his word to the writers, they wrote it down and distributed it, and then we, the readers, would read it and we would be convicted by its authenticity. So then what would we do? The same thing we do now, we start telling people about it. We would post it in the, the square, on social media, we would start quoting it in other books, we would read it in our churches and from our pulpits, and we would copy it down and continue to circulate it. The inspired works would continue to be copied and circulated, and the ones that weren't simply wouldn't. And the really cool thing is, we can see this process happen in real time by reading some works 
from our early church fathers, and that's what we're going to do tonight. Now, this is not an exhaustive list of all of the early church fathers, so if you want to read more about it, there's a lot of really interesting stuff in there. What I did instead was kind of take some snapshots of the process of canonization so that we can see it happen. Uh, And then one other thing to note, everything that we're about to talk about tonight is available online. There's no copyrights from 2,000-year-old letters. Uh, You can find this online, and if you can't, you can get with me, and I will get you guys a link, all right? So the first guy we're going to talk about is a man named Clement of Rome. Now, Clement of Rome was a disciple of Paul. A lot of theologians believe that he is the Clement mentioned in Philippians 4. He was the bishop of Rome at the time, and he had a couple of epistles. We're going to read from the first one today, 1 Clement. He wrote this in about 95 AD. I want you guys to recognize how incredibly early in the process this is. John wrote the last couple books of the New Testament within the last five or ten years. A lot of people were still alive who saw Jesus alive at this point. That's how early we are in the timeline. And in 1 Clement, Clement quotes from Matthew, Luke, Romans, Galatians, Philippians, and Hebrews. Now, why is this important? This implies that he expects that the people who are reading this letter have access to these books. So we can assume that these books are being pretty well circulated at the time. It wouldn't make sense for him to quote these books if nobody knew where they were coming from. He also says that 1 Corinthians was written in the Spirit. Now, it shouldn't shock us that Paul's works are going to be the first to sort of make it into the canon. He wrote them first, so they've been around the longest. And also, Peter himself, in 2 Peter 3.16, puts Paul's writings on the same level as the other scriptures. So, Paul's works were recognized very early. But we're going to jump ahead five years to 100 AD, and we're going to talk about a really cool work. I, I, if, you, if you haven't read it, I think it's probably worth going and reading. It's only like 10 pages, but it's called the Didache. It's dated to 100 AD, and it's really more of like a pamphlet than a letter or a book, right? It's like something that we would hand out after service for new believers. Um, It has the pillars of faith in it. It kind of has like a guide for new converts, like what times they meet and when they pray and stuff like that, and then it has some hymns and some prayers in it. But what we can get from this is it quotes all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as well as 1st and 2nd Peter, Romans, Hebrews, Acts, Ephesians, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, 1 Timothy, 2 Thessalonians, Titus, and even Revelation. So at this point, 100 AD, the writers of this document expected that anybody who would read it probably had access to these books. So we can tell how well circulated our New Testament books are already. We're going to jump ahead 10 more years to 110 AD, and we're going to meet a guy named Ignatius of Antioch. Ignatius was a disciple of John the Apostle. His writings are actually pretty cool. When he refers to John, he refers to him as the elder. If you've uh, read 2nd or 3rd John, the, uh, the epistles, you would recognize that that's how John referred to himself. It kind of feels like familiar when you're reading it. But uh, in his works... We see him quote several of Paul's epistles as well as Matthew, Luke, and Acts. But this is where we start to see the tone change. You see, when he quotes these things, he will quote them by saying things like, as the scriptures say, and then a quote. 
All right, so now we're starting to see that these early church fathers are starting to recognize these books as Scripture. Now, to get to the next um, milestone, we're going to make a bit of a bigger jump. Uh, We're going to go to 175 A.D., and in 175 A.D., we have a manuscript uh, called the Mortorium Fragment. I think I got a picture of it, yeah. Uh, It's a partial manuscript, so we're missing parts on the top and the bottom, but in the parts that we can read, what we get is really our first sort of canonical list of books in the New Testament, and this fragment uh, basically breaks them down into three different categories. You have the accepted category, which basically means if you went into any church in the area and you started reading from these, everybody's going to be on the same page. These are accepted scriptural books. Then there's the disputed category, which are like, depends on where you go. You go into some churches, they're accepting it. You go into some other churches, maybe they're, they're frowning upon it. And then full-blown rejected. All right, so in the accepted category, we have the four gospels, Paul's epistles, Jude 1st and 2nd John, and John's revelation. Now, what's interesting is this fragment also mentions an apocalyptic text from Peter, but it says that, uh, it, it, it explicitly says that the church uh, leaders at the time, they don't want this read in church. So you can tell that they already have like sort of some red flags up, like maybe this isn't from Peter or maybe this just is an inspired text. And then in the rejected category, we have the Shepherd of Hermas, which is one of those books that ends up making it into history channel shows about lost books of the Bible, but it's completely rejected at 175 AD as being from our time. They're saying that it was written like too recently to be a scriptural text. And then we also have two letters from Paul, or what the fragment says are a forgery of Paul, one to the Laodiceans and one to the Alexandrians that are full-blown rejected. Now, this is important because we can see now that they're not just accepting everything that's got an apostle's name on it. These, these things are being circulated, and the church as a whole is deciding what is canon and what isn't. Now, we're going to take another big jump, and we're going to jump to the early 300s, and we're going to find a guy named Eusebius. Eusebius was an early Christian historian. In 324 AD, he wrote a book called Ecclesiastical History, and in this book, he records what the church is currently accepting as canon, and he records that they are currently accepting 22 out of the 27 books of our New Testament as canon. The last five, James, Jude, 2 Peter, 2 and 3 John, are considered disputed. Now, the reason for this is because those epistles are extremely short. Jude is like, I mean, if you haven't read Jude, go read Jude. Like right now, we can wait. That's how short it is. They're incredibly short, and because of that, there's not a lot of content to quote. So they're not being quoted in churches or in other writings as often just because they're so small, and it just takes longer for them to get fully accepted. He also has a list of books that are denied. We don't need to talk about them because none of them are in our New Testament. And then we can see by around 350, the canon starts to close. We have a guy named Cyril of Jerusalem in 350 AD. 
He confirms 26 out of 27 of our New Testament books, only leaving out Revelation. He doesn't say it's disputed. He just simply doesn't mention it. Most historians believe that that's because at this time there was uh, an apocalyptic cult that was gaining some traction, and they just didn't really want people reading Revelation in churches because it was gaining too much steam. But by 367, 390, and 395, an atheist... Uh, Gregory and Augustine, they've all listed the 27 books of our New Testament as the canon. So what we can see is in 270 years, a gradual process of our New Testament canon being agreed upon by the entire church. So that's how we got our 27 books, but the next question is, how do we know that these books haven't been significantly altered? Can we rely on their textual accuracy? Now, setting Theanoustos aside, if we were going to judge the New Testament like we would judge any other book of antiquity, any other ancient text, what would that look like? Historians basically look for two things when they're trying to judge an ancient text's accuracy. They want to see the total number of manuscripts we have. More manuscripts means we have a better opportunity to make corrections for human copying errors. If you have 100 manuscripts and one of them, the scribe used the wrong to or the wrong there or didn't put in a comma or something, but in the other 99 we see that it's correct, we can filter those errors out. So more manuscripts is good. And the other thing they want to see is how close can we get to the original. The closer we get to the original, the fewer opportunities there are for mistakes to be added by people, all right? So before we jump into the New Testament manuscripts, I wanted to give you some contrast, some other books of antiquity, some books that you're probably familiar with, maybe even had to read in school. They're all available on Amazon. Nobody disputes that these people wrote these books. We're going to do it top three style. All right, Plato's Dialogues. All right, it's up there. Plato's Dialogues, we have about 200 manuscripts. The oldest is Codex some, something, something, 39. And uh, it's dated to around 895 AD. That's about 1,000 years after Plato would have written it. Number two is Julius Caesar's Gaelic Wars. This is his memoirs, memoirs before becoming emperor, written in about 50 BC. We have about 250 manuscripts. The closest we can get to when he would have written it is this uh, manuscript called Amsterdam 73. It dates to the late 9th century, about 1,000 years after he would have written it. And the most well-documented and undisputed, outside of the New Testament, ancient text is Homer's Iliad, written in about the 8th century B.C. We have 1,800 manuscripts. That's pretty good. Um, and the oldest is dated to the 10th century, Venetus A., uh, that's about 1,300 years after Homer would have written it, all right? So that's what we have for context. Let's talk about the New Testament. I'm going to make you wait for the total number of manuscripts. I want to build some suspense. So I thought we could go through some of the, the manuscripts we have, because I think it's cool. The oldest manuscript we have is something called Papyrus P52. It's not complete. It's just a fragment but it can be dated to 140 A.D. It's just 50 years after John would have written the original. I mean, this could be just a copy. 
It, uh, the, the text from it is John uh, chapter 18, some pieces of Jesus' trial, which is an interesting piece to have because we can verify the trial through other historians like Josephus, so we can verify the historical accuracy of those statements from outside the Bible. So that's a pretty cool piece. And we're going to jump ahead to 175 AD. There's actually uh, two sets from this time, and we're going to go to Papyrus P75 first. And the cool thing about this one is it, it shows the, you can almost make it out, it's tiny. You can see how it's the end of Luke, and then there's like a page break, and then it's the beginning of John. And the really cool thing about this is that means at 175 AD, these books were already being circulated together as one work. They weren't necessarily being uh, separated and circulated independently. So we can already start to see them coming together as an individual canon. Uh, then we're going to move on to Papyrus P46. This is almost a complete collection of Paul's epistles. This is wild. Uh, it has Romans, Hebrews, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Ephesians, Galatians, Philippians, Colossians, 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, and Titus. And we have all of them from 175 A.D., just about 100 years after Paul would have written them. We're going to move on to Papyrus P66. And in Papyrus P66, which is dated to around 200 A.D., we get our first complete gospel. We have the complete book of John. It's not entirely complete. There's some sections missing, but it's like 90% complete. So within 120 years of the original, we've got a manuscript. And then we're going to make a big jump to 325 A.D., where we're going to get Codex Vaticanus. This is the oldest complete New and Old Testament only 230 years after the writing of the last book of the Bible, and you can go see this today in the Vatican Library. It's wild. All right, enough suspense. Who wants to throw out some numbers for how many manuscripts we got? No takers? All right, so for the New Testament alone, we have 24,000 manuscripts, over 6,000 in the original Greek alone, and I think I have... Okay, so the dark pink there, I know it's going to be hard for you guys to see, the dark pink there is just Greek manuscripts. Uh, the larger pink one is all New Testament manuscripts. And all of those little yellow things, those are the books that we were talking about before. Homer is that biggest yellow one, and then all the other books of antiquity get smaller and smaller. So what conclusion can we draw? Is the Bible reliable? The answer is simple. The Bible is the most reliable book in all of antiquity, and the Bible is the inspired word of God. Um, worship team, if you want to start making your way up. So I was trying to come up with a way to close this, and I wanted to give you guys one more manuscript, I guess. Um, so we talked about the oldest New Testament manuscript, P52, but... The oldest surviving biblical texts we have obviously come from the Old Testament. They're called the Ketif Hinnom Scrolls. Ketif Hinnom is an archaeological site south of Jerusalem. They're written on silver, and those are the fragments there, and they contain verses from Exodus and Numbers. Now, the Numbers passages are from chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. 
and these are commonly referred to as Aaron's Prayer or Aaron's Benediction. On a personal note, the college that I went to, we had to go to chapel service a couple times a week in order to get enough for credit, and the chaplain would close uh, every chapel service with this benediction, and I thought it would be a cool way for me to close this tonight. So if you would please stand and receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.